Happy Monday. Happy Monday. How's it going, Joe? Doing great. How was your Christmas? I was good. It was very low key. What do you so, mean by low key? Meaning, you know, I think I got up at nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, got a lot of sleep. I didn't have any kids <laughs> running around or anything <laughs> like that. No nieces or nephews this year. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just enjoyed some extra rest. <laughs> Hung out with my mom and husband. It was, huh. it was awesome. So yeah, tell me great. what that would be like. Um, <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah, I think I was up at four four thirty or something. But aren't you always up at four four thirty anyway? It's usually, we're kind of on the opposite yeah. schedules. Like we're in different time zones. Basically. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's um, kind of how it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, originally we we're going to have uh, Luigi Paterno on. He uh, just actually emailed and said he's woke up really sick. So a lot of I, my friends are going, and it, we're getting back to like actually having colds and flus and other things. Although that's a, know, a lot of my There's friends, no such thing as other illnesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of my friends also have COVID <laughs> right now. So yeah. lots of stuff going around. Yeah. Um, yeah, get well, uh, Luigi. Yeah. Uh, I hope to have you on at some point. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I, I think we'll talk about the. Uh, um, we'll take a bit of it. Uh, we're originally going to talk about. Uh, machine learning and production. Um, I think we're going to take a bit of a slight detour and talk about data engineering versus uh, uh, machine learning engineering. So um, I think these two sometimes do get conflated with the other. Um, they're not quite the same thing, but um, let's dive into it. And also, if you're in the audience, feel free to um, you know, drop, com drop comments, ask questions, um, et cetera, et cetera. The usual way we do things. Yeah, so, yeah. Troll us if you want, um, but hopefully not too badly. <laughs> Tell us we're full of it or we have opinions about these things. Um, I mean, what are, what are your general thoughts about the difference between ML engineering and data engineering? Well, I mean, you got to look at it, I think, from the perspective of life cycle, right? Yeah. So that's how I tend to view things. Um, life cycle, really, the data engineering life cycle starts from getting data from source systems, you know, doing something with it, then making it available downstream to data scientists and uh you know, data analysts and so forth. Um, one of those uh, end users may in fact be an, a machine learning engineer. They yep. may take the data that you've produced and, um, you know, set up systems that, um, you know, I, I guess incorporate the data into the machine learning uh, data lifecycle as well, right? So. Yeah, and I think of it as a big di Venn diagram with a ton of overlap in the middle because yeah. quite frankly, often ML engineers, there are many ML engineers who just <coughs> focus on like managing GPU clusters, for example. If you're at a really big company like Facebook, you have ML engineers that just focus on that one job. On the other hand, in a small organization, you have, may have ML engineers that do the entire life cycle all the way from ingesting data, processing, featureization, and then running models in TensorFlow or something like this. Mm -hmm. yep. so, yeah. So, yeah, I think it, just, it really does depend on the uh, maturity and kind of where that company is or that yep. organization scale yeah because you say yeah. the, the role could be sort of a hybrid role and, and i think that that's pretty realistic actually which means this engineer needs to know a a ton about a ton right 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 so gpus when to you know what type of hardware to use on based upon a certain machine learning problem etc 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 um and i would say also having a good understanding of you know, sort of the underlying stuff even like how linear algebra works right like yes. and how that impacts hardware is yeah you know, I mean, we're both math nerds. You, you probably yes. forgot more math than I've probably ever known. Right. I've certainly but... forgotten a lot of math. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use my representation theory that much anymore. So. Walk me through that, though. What, what would be some of the, you know, um, if let's take the thought experiment for yeah. a, a data engineer. What was What's some of the math that you, you think a data engineer should know to do machine learning or to at least understand what's going on? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the exams I really like in this domain is the uh, Google Cloud Professional Data Engineer exam because it does, they do inject a lot of basic machine learning in there, the kind of stuff that data engineers should know. So, for example, they talk a lot about basic types of featureization, um, including things like one-hot encoding, where you take different features and you effectively just map them to linearly independent vectors, which sounds more complicated than it actually right. is. It's rows and columns. Yeah, yeah. It's so. just mapping to ones and zeros, basically. Right. Yeah. Super complicated. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually something, a lot of this stuff you can do in SQL even. Um, at some point, you outgrow SQL as a tool. But yeah, a, a lot of like, um, a lot of overlapping into machine learning engineering just comes down to your ability to communicate with um, data scientists and your more machine learning specialists who actually develop the models themselves. Right. So Yeah. It's kind of a classic question. I saw this yeah. um, stupid, uh, and I, I called it dumb. It was a two by two matrix of like, uh, it was a company assessing the skills that they thought they uh, data scientists needed. And it was like right. math was not important and at the bottom, which I guess depending on their, their situation, maybe. But, depends, yeah. but the thing is, the thing that irritated me was it also appeared in Harvard Business Review where it could be interpreted that this is um, a matrix of uh, data science skills. And so um, I don't know, I'm always a first principles person. So I think at some point, like you do need to, dive into the math and just understand how things work. Um, yeah. But maybe I'm overcomplicating things and the audience will probably agree with that statement. So, um, but it does, it does help. Right. So yeah. um, like I think certain uh, the way code's written, for example, um, it could be more efficient, you know, it could be less efficient. Like you could take advantage of, of packages that um, basically just vectorize what you're trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah. But knowing how that works, I think is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's, um, I think blindly applying libraries and, and um, formulas and models is um, at some point I would say not advise. Right. So. And, and you like to use the term cargo culting, right? And yeah. that is that uh, people get into, say, a machine learning engineering role. They don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. They're just kind of thrown into this, which I think mm -hmm. we both had that experience to some extent being thrown into new teams. And the tendency is just to say, well, this company is doing it, so why don't we do it? <laughs> not realizing. There's a lot of this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're not operating at the scale of Facebook, say, then you probably are doing a lot less specialization. You know, I mean, Google has engineers that just focus on one part of one system, and that's yep. their whole career. And they're very, very good at that one thing. If you're at a small company, you can't do that, nor should you be attempting to do that. And you may find a lot of value from potentially complex algorithms, but often the value is in very simple algorithms, especially in kind of your phase one when you're just kicking things off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say start with data engineering too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. unless you're, you know, it's sort of just the, the uh, uh, Monica Rigotti's uh, data science hierarchy of needs or the AI hierarchy of needs, like machine learning's at the top of the pyramid for a reason. Right. Um, most of the bottom is, is simply just the efforts that data engineering, um, you know, is, is trying to solve, which is like data pipelines, um, you know, storing data, transformations, et cetera, et cetera. That's more of a data engineering type of a problem because it sets you up to do analysis, right? And analysis, I would say, um, you know, eight or nine times out of 10 is where you should focus your attention first, get to know your data, get to know how data solves your problems versus jumping straight into machine learning. Because um, inevitably that, that engineer that's tasked with machine learning engineering, when they're not ready, they end up just doing data engineering. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh... I think recognizing the priorities in data engineering actually helps you to produce value. What sometimes happens in data engineering is people are thrown into these roles and they, first of all, uh, overcomplicate things. Um, frankly, especially, you know, a few years back in the peak big data era, there was a real tendency to overcomplicate. Well, give me some examples of that. 
Well, so so what we often saw is, you know, companies would build out a Hadoop cluster and it would turn out they didn't even have that much data to justify mm -hmm. building Hadoop like a cluster. a couple of gigs or something. Yeah, yeah. Or even even if you're talking terabytes. I mean, that's it's not that really much, not yeah. that much. Um, you know, it's easier now, to be frank. But even back then, you had tools like EMR that you could do off-the-shelf stuff with fairly easily. And after a while, it just became the, the Hadoop cluster would become this altar that everyone worshipped at. It's like you would have to spend all this time babysitting the Hadoop cluster, upgrading software, or doing ops on it, and there was sometimes a loss of focus on what the actual problem was that you were trying to solve, or what the value of this data in this Hadoop cluster was. So that's the overcomplication part. And then the other thing we saw, and this goes back to what you were saying about analytics, that you kind of want to start there before getting into machine learning. If your data is not suitable for analytics, if the quality is not there, then it's also going to produce bad models when you train and the model evaluation will be bad. So in other words, if there's there's bad, there's corrupt data in there, there's like, for example, bot traffic that you're not able to filter out that's messing up your results, that will also, just as it messes up the human brain doing analytics, it's going to mess mm -hmm. up any model that you try to train. And that's where... You've got to focus on fundamentals before and build a foundation before you can do anything really sophisticated. Yep. And in practice, that's often part of the machine learning engineer's job. But depending on where you set boundaries, it may be the data engineer's job. The data engineer may handle the early parts of the lifecycle, get the data really clean, and then pass it off to ML engineers. Or again, at some companies, some companies may not even have the title data engineer. They may just mm -hmm. call everyone a data, an ML engineer and handle the data. They might, pipeline. yeah. So, I mean, it's a, yeah. It's, a, it's a title that keeps people around. <laughs> Yeah, I think I saw one right. stat where like ML engineers made like one and a half or two times as much as data engineers. So <laughs> maybe we should just rename our company and like rename everything. We're just going it. to ML engineering. That's right. Know. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But I would say that the company, the number of companies that need ML engineering, if you take that that subset, it's like data engineering versus ML engineering. That yeah. I, I think data engineering is um, just much more in demand right now, just because I mean, it just seems to be. Maybe we're just speaking, you know, anecdotally, and you know, we have a, you know, kind of selection bias as well, or, you know, but. I think for us, and again, this may be a selection bias problem, but what we're seeing is the transition to the cloud is driving a lot of demand. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of our gigs are various types of transitioning to the cloud or building out new cloud infrastructure, right? Like things are really easier in the cloud, but you still need training. You still need expertise to build good systems in the cloud. And the cloud also adds new complexity in the sense that instead of having a walled garden of data in your data warehouse, you have like more of a data lake environment where a data lake may include a cloud data warehouse mm -hmm. as well. Like you have a whole spectrum of data tools you can use and now you have to manage and orchestrate those and manage the flow of data through that whole system rather than just kind of having it sitting in one place. For sure. Yeah, uh, Petri, Petri, I hope you're, I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, he asked, have you guys checked out the uh, uh, Velohi, um, Velohi uh, MLOps platform to manage uh, ML development pipeline and manage models, versions, et cetera? I have heard of it. I have not checked it out. So um, it seems pretty cool. There's a lot of these um, platforms out there right now. Yeah. So it seems like there's new ones popping up all over the place. And then yeah. the clouds obviously have their, you know, sort of standard fare as well. There's yeah. Vertex and maker and stuff, but yeah, to answer your question, I have not checked it out, so I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. and you can you you expressed an opinion on kind of a standard ML ops stack. What was your opinion on this? <clears throat> I, I think it's um, yeah. I've been chatting with some people in the ML ops community yeah. about this. I, I think because there's some notion that there should be like one ML stack to rule them all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of riffing on this a bit, but I, I'm right. coming away with the sense that there really isn't. Yeah. So let, let's look at what. I think because there's the notion what I, I did, I opened my big mouth and talked about the, uh, you know, the, the modern data stack versus um, the modern uh, ML ops stack, which I, I said yeah. is a joke. Yeah. 
yeah. um, during a uh, podcast, which should be out pretty soon. Okay. Um, yeah, I was chatting with uh, some of the folks over at uh, Tecton about this. Um, but, you know, I, I, so the MLOps stack really, or the modern data stack, right? Like that, that's really, I think, a progression of practices that have actually been around for, for decades. Yeah. Right? You're talking like a data warehouse um, doing, you know, ETL developers, data warehouse uh, engineers and so forth. Um, really that whole practice, it, it, you basically say, oh, you're going to use uh, cloud-based tools now, you know, modular tools. Um, that's really the big difference. I think it's a lot simpler, but the underlying practices haven't changed. Um, and so, uh, but you, you apply this to machine learning, right? So analytics has been around for a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's a solved problem, right? The tools change, but the practices basically stay the same. You have things that make things, you have, I would say technologies that make things easier, like DBT, but you tell me like what has actually fundamentally changed. There's more of a notion of ops. So you're borrowing from software engineering, but there's not really like a grand new nugget of an idea here. It's more of an evolution. That's fine. Um, by the way, in case we're upstairs right now, because I'm expecting a bunch of contractors here. My, uh, <laughs> a lot um, of remodeling going on. Here yeah, it's remodeling. Yeah. I might have yeah. a kitchen today. Um, so... Where was I? The, I think with ML ops, though, it's a bit different, right? So, uh, you know, you have different machine learning problems, computer vision, yeah. um, and it, where they work on different data types, right? So the notion that you need a, to use a feature store for everything is like, I think um, maybe there will be feature stores that handle unstructured data. I think there are a couple that are kind of early trying this problem out, but actually there are. Um, can't remember the name to them, but still it's, it's hard to pinpoint, okay, so like this stack is going to work for every type of machine learning problem, right? So... Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a bottom line of it. And it's kind of related to, and maybe we can put this comment up basically about <laughs> utility of deep learning, but like people get very, very excited about deep learning, but deep learning is really a highly, highly specialized technique that works extremely well on specific problems. Yep. And I would say that the efforts to create sort of general purpose, deep learning tools that solving analytics problems have been to say the least uneven, like there's been some progress, but in general, you kind of, like you're saying, you use different tools for different problems. I mean, yep. deep learning really is amazing in what it can do, but it's also very limited in certain respects. It is limited like, in certain yeah. respects, right? Yeah. Especially when you get to non-linearities <laughs> of structured data, it, it tends to kind of get a bit wonky. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, as Petri uh, says here, uh, only a few companies really apply deep learning. Most are doing basic reporting or advanced analytics, but, and that's why demand for hardcore ML engineers is on the low side. And in his uh, opinion, and I, I, I think we share that opinion too. It's just um, even applying classical machine learning methods, I would say, you know, uh, like we know one client that basically just uses logistic regression for everything, and they, they very well have the capability of using something more complicated, but it's like, uh, something as simple as logistic regression works for their needs. And so that's what they use. In fact, we've seen this, right? I mean, frankly, I've been on teams that kind of went in this direction. They hired PhDs, people like me, but PhDs who are much more specialized in deep learning. And they, that those teams came in and worked on problems and didn't make a lot of progress with deep learning. And then they were able to make a lot of progress and generate a lot of value using more basic techniques. They kind of fell back on the more basic classical techniques that ultimately solve those problems. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Is it proper to call these techniques classical? I don't know. Regression, I think of regression as classical because it's not even that modern. It's like just statistics, basically. Yeah, it's and that's been around for how long technique. now? Like hundreds of years or something? Yeah, I mean, we teach we teach a lot of regression techniques and calculus classes and yeah. algebra classes. <laughs> yeah. But if you look at the math, I mean, the math behind a lot of um, uh, machine learning, I mean, it's basically what? Probability and statistics, right? Yeah. Um, some calc, obviously, because yeah. you have to do gradient descent. Yeah um analysis but that's calculus basically as well yeah. yeah and so i mean really tell me like 
and there's obviously some new stuff going on, but that's why I kind of come back to the, you know, first principles, understand the math behind what's going on. Cause in a lot of cases you'll realize, okay, so I could get away with just doing like simple um, squares of differences, uh, you know, basically, um, you know, regression um, or, uh, you know, basically being able to calculate distances. Yeah. That's pretty easy. Um, you know, or I could do deep learning, which actually deep learning also calculates distances when you're doing back problems because yeah. you're just calculating an error. Yeah. So, but then, again, I, I know this because I've studied the math behind it, right? Like I didn't just take for granted, like, oh, I can use this library and, um, you know, and then everything's magically working. Like, but that's how I'm wired. So also kind of weird in a lot of ways. So <laughs> that's like, that's yeah, why, I know. I mean, yeah, that's why we're on here. We're basically. So. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing Who the hell between... gets up on Monday morning and, and does this after Christmas? Kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Masochist, are you? Yeah. Um, but I think the other point I'll make is that, you know, even in the, like the last five years, when did the deep learning revolution really happen? It's just really been the last couple of years that we've seen like a big. Well, I mean, it kicked space. off what 2013, 2014. Yeah, I remember not long ago. <laughs> I mean, the grand scheme of things is not that long ago no. either, but it did change a lot of things. I would say for the better. Like it, it took, you know, image recognition, um, right. you know, and computer vision to a totally different level that you wouldn't have gotten. I mean, think, you know, the um, what was AlexNet or something like that was the first really use of. Um, deep learning to solve, uh, you know, an image problem back in the day. And, you know, basically the scores were like 80% ish baseline. And then that kicked, you know, kicked up in the nineties and then like 98% accuracy or something. So I mean, it works really well yeah. for certain types of problems. That's just it. And I, I mean, fundamentally the way I understand it with image recognition, you kind of had all these different techniques that were jockeying <clears> for position. One would pull ahead, another would pull ahead. And then all of a sudden deep learning just blew them out of the water, which yep. that really was a revolution with deep learning. So it pulled so far ahead in those media type applications with audio and video. But deep learning does have some major limitations. And I think fundamentally, you know, we, we love to think that we can predict things because that's what we get paid to do. But fundamentally, there's a lot of unpredictable progress in this domain that's coming. And we just don't know what that's gonna look like. And that's another reason why it's hard to define any kind of like ML op stack because probably two or three years from now, there will be some brand new technique. It could be brand new or it could be some iteration on deep learning or something like this that will once again revolutionize the field. Well, yeah, because people are recognized, even the founders yeah. of it are recognizing the limitations of it. Right, right. So, right. so for example, like GPT-3, all, all of these um, you know, language models have a memory problem. And by that, I mean that they can't, they're basically like a human with dementia. So they can, they can compose really nice text, but they can't remember what they said five minutes ago. And right. they just can't do that at all. Whereas a human can keep various levels of history. We can keep that in our brains. We could say, okay, 10 minutes ago, I was kind of talking about this. Let's loop back to that part of the conversation. And so if you want to do something like write a novel, you need to have a memory so you can keep the thread of it. Just use blockchain for that. Yeah, you just use blockchain. <laughs> yeah. So so I think at some point, like when machines develop that ability in conjunction with yep. just amazing image recognition and text synthesis and everything else, then you're talking yet another big revolution. But no one solved that problem yet. No one has any idea how, as far as I know. You bring so, up an interesting yeah. point too about pr prediction. I say, yeah. I'm going to say it maybe in a different way. Um, I always hear people talking about they predict the future. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's hogwash. Right. So, right. Um, but your thoughts on that though? I mean, I think people over apply machine learning to certain things. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think if you want to understand forecasting, um, I, I think it's actually very useful to look at the Facebook profit, you know, whole model system. Um, a lot of people trash it routinely, which I agree it has limitations, but it actually works extremely well for 
what is it what it is intended to do and that is it's meant to predict in domains where things are fairly predictable if that makes any sense so in mm -hmm. other words most years the christmas season is fairly predictable right people behave in fairly predictable ways on specific holidays you can look and you can take a profit model and you can match it to the data and you'll see it uses <coughs> multi-periodic techniques in other words it says okay I, i'm going to assume that in this data i can have many different periods going on i can have weekly periods and monthly periods and yearly in these different trends that will repeat over time. And then it can also have things like certain holidays produce certain behaviors. I'm going to overlay that on top. It's actually, you actually get more value out of this type of model by being less sophisticated because your more sophisticated time series techniques don't take into account a human calendar, human behavior, yep. really basic things about humans. But here's the problem with profit and with any of these techniques, really, they, they just fall apart when you throw in, when you throw a wrench into the works and a wrench can be, COVID or this year it was like Omicron where all of a sudden you have thousands of flights canceled because you have a huge spike in uh, COVID cases that happens to coincide with the Christmas right. season, the, this big holiday shopping season right before the New Year's. That's where your models completely fall apart. And I think one of the problems with, uh, with business in general is that we like to have one predicted model, right? We like to say, okay, this is our business forecast and this is our business plan. Yeah. When really we should have multiple plans to say, well, what if this happens? What if this yeah, happens? you should do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's not really forecasting. It's just like planning for scenarios or simulating different scenarios. You can kind of be prepared to come out on top regardless of what happens. Well, it's time series yeah. forecasting. Is that machine learning? Yeah, see, that's an interesting question. I, have I don't no think idea. it is. I think it's controversial. I don't think it is. Because I, I see uh, yeah. data scientists trying to like get their tests set and their trains set and everything else. I'm like, you're overcomplicating it. Yeah. It's a different type of a problem to solve um, yeah. inherently, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, Santa's calling uh, Petri. Yeah, okay. See you, man. Have a good day. Yeah. Um, Guy Thompson. What's up, Guy? Hope you had a good Christmas. Um, I see predictive analytics not necessarily being used to predict, but more to acknowledge predictions already oh, made by humans from less sophisticated yeah. an, uh, analysis. What are your thoughts on that comment? That's interesting. I mean, to be frank, I see a lot of analytics being used in this way, and I, I view it as kind of a misuse of anal analytics where business leaders who don't always understand statistics want a certain result, and so they just keep asking. So why do you think that is? This need for certainty. It's an interesting thing. In an uncertain world. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it, we like to feel reinforced, right? We like to have our confidence boost boosted by having people use data to support the things that we believe. Yeah. What are some anti-patterns? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, specifically, I, I think if we as business leaders can kind of step back from our beliefs and ask more open-ended questions and look for statistics to challenge ourselves, we'll at least start questioning our assumptions and maybe assessing other possible business strategies. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think um, thinking in terms of confidence intervals and ranges, I yeah. think is something that's missing. People yeah. want like that, the number, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is it 10? Right. Tell me the number. And I'll yeah. go off that. But it's, exactly. it's, it's not how the world works. Right. The world's very probabilistic. Yeah. It's not deterministic. Yep, exactly. So, Well, and I, I mean, I think Soleb and others have pointed out for a long time that in the financial sector, people would use a, a kind of 99% scenario. So in other words, tell me, tell me roughly speaking, what would happen? Give me like a 99% band of what would happen. Well, the problem is that that 1% band will happen, that can happen at least a cent every century if you're saying 99% probability within a year. And that 1% probability could completely blow things up in a very catastrophic way. Well, as he also points way. out, these 1% probabilities, these uh, once in a century things, they happen like every few years. Right, right. So, so basically that Your distribution is yeah. also wrong. Your distribution is wrong. Because you're, you're yeah. assuming the world's Gaussian, right? And it's yeah. not. It, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just a lot of misapplications. But that's why as a data engineer, right. if you understand how things work, you can, I think, help 
add value for you know ML engineers, or especially if you're in a hybrid role, right, where you're you are the data engineer and the uh, ML engineer and the and the janitor and everything else, right? Yeah. Like, so I think just understanding how things works does help. Yeah. So. Okay, so here's a question. I mean, and I, I was thinking about this before I even got into data, but like, do we should we be getting back to more simulation, maybe? So I think there's a big focus on trying to predict the future, but should we just be doing more scenario simulation with a variety of scenarios? I think so. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, and one thing that springs to mind is, I think when right before COVID, right, and you had been to Asia, you've been to various places, you've been around that area, and you're like, ah, this could be really bad. I don't know if it's going to be, but it could be really bad. Yeah. And I think what happened with most of corporate America is they just kind of tried to operate with optimism instead, saying, oh, let's let's just pretend that everything is going to be okay right. and operate according to that scenario instead of saying, all right, let's have a plan for in case this doesn't happen, because maybe you know probably won't, but let's have a plan for in case the case where it does happen yep. and be prepared for that. And that's where simulation comes in, where you see data points to say, all right, maybe the economy is not going to function the way I expect it to, or maybe society is not going to function the way I expect it to for a while. Can I take that into account in planning scenarios and have multiple ways of handling things? Yeah, it's like wargaming here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And the military does this all the time. Yeah. I don't know. They sometimes get the best results, but uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, a yeah. for another day. But yeah, I, simulations. I mean, that's definitely something you should be doing for sure. And can you tie that into machine learning? I mean, if we can't predict the future, then maybe we can at least simu simulate a lot of different scenarios using modern modeling techniques, even advanced things like deep learning, and just kind of ask interesting questions about what the future could look like. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I think like Monte Carlo techniques are taught in uh, data science courses and, yeah. and math, so that's yeah. I think that's a good standby. Just do random stuff and see where it lands. Yeah. Brownian motion. Uh, don't assume that means you're going to understand like things like the stock market, though. Uh, right. We always see this where yeah. you know people are like, oh, Brownian motion. Well, <laughs> you know, random walks and stuff, right? So it's uh, anyway. We've talked about that in another chat. Um, yes. Yeah. Questions for the audience. So, wh what do you think about um, data engineering versus machine learning engineering? Like, where do you see um, the differences? Where do you see similarities? Um, and what are your thoughts on it? So. Otherwise, Matt and I'll keep just blabbing out whatever. Jabbering out so, all kinds of stuff. That's what we always do is Monday morning data yeah, chat, yeah, right? right? So again, I mean, for the audience too, this is, you know, Monday morning data chat is basically like Matt and I um, just basically filming conversations that we normally have anyway. If it was if it was not a camera here, it would be Matt and I just talking about literally the same thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> this happens all the time, actually. Such exciting yeah. people. So. <laughs> um Predictive analytics being used. With yeah, guy says his favorite right now is predictive analytics being used with cryptocurrency. Uh, can you elaborate on that, guy? I'm, I'm curious what you what you mean by that. Um, it reminds me of a talk that I gave about four or five years ago yeah. uh, on um, time series forecasting, actually. And, and so I, I took Bitcoin price at the end of 2017 and I was like, OK, now watch this. If you took the, the forecast literally, yeah. you know, it'd be like in the you know hundreds of thousands, uh, given the uh, the trend. That it was on, and then of course, I think a few weeks later it crashed. Okay, right. Yeah. So that was that was sort of the punchline. Yeah. But then where are we now? I guess the model. I think fifties, yeah, mid fifties yeah. now. Or okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's just it's interesting. But yeah, if you, if you elaborate on that guy, I'd be very curious what you mean with a predictive analytics with cryptocurrency because I'm seeing other people try this too. They're like, yeah. I want to um, do uh, predictive analytics like using ARIMA models to predict stock prices to predict meme stock prices, and then I have another. Um, friend who told me about one of his friends who's taking um ibm watson and then combing uh reddit like wall street bets to um get any signals to figure out where to trade and so i don't know i think it's interesting uh, I, I personally wouldn't do this but i tend to be a bit of um 
I don't know. Yeah, I Kind mean, of an it's, old school guy. It's well, and I, I, I guess the point is that you just need to understand what your risks are, right? Fundamentally, it, this sounds like a modern version of an arbitrage play where you're just identifying some uh, misalignment in the market for the way. But what informational do you, advantage would you have going on Reddit, though? You know what I'm I mean, what <laughs> the whole concept of meme stocks is kind of nuts, right? And that's what people are taking advantage of. Like, yeah, people are just betting on random stocks based on, you know, these Reddit threads. And they're kind of egging each other on to bet on stocks. And I guess if you understand your risks, that's okay. If you don't understand your risks, then you could lose a lot of money that you actually need or that you owe to someone else. So a guy says uh, non-utilitarian coins are usually just scams. There's a lot of people uh, still attempting to apply stock market prediction calculations to something that's non-market dependent. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, I think you'd be, you'd be successful because you were lucky. Yeah, until your luck runs out eventually. Yeah. That's the fundamental problem. I can remember seeing, I saw this time series model once where it was, um, it was basically just like, like moving averages, um, like multiple regression on each month, but there was no uh, dependency on prior time uh, periods. And so, um, I was like, this thing is not going to work. It, it's, it's working because it's lucky, not because um, it's good. And sure enough, it blew up like a couple months later. And the, the customer was all like, hey, why is this breaking? And I'm like, I didn't make this, but I can tell you why. Because <laughs> it's not supposed to work. It shouldn't have been built in the first place like this. So Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a certain degree of responsibility. Like there's an ethical obligation here to communicate with our customers when we build models to explain the risks that they entail, right? And any time a model is being used to make bets, we have to explain to the people using that that this could make the wrong bet for you and then you could be out money. And let's let's explain, you know, let's look at some scenarios where this may not work. So for example, if there's a correction on the Bitcoin market, then your model may predict an exponential curve that can't keep going on forever like right. at some point something has to correct you might be holding the back when it does you so. might be with ml engineering too say you built a giant stack to, for this prediction yeah. too you invested a lot of money into this yeah. um how, if you're an ml engineer how do you dissuade people from going down that path in the first place see and that's the or danger. do you because you have an economic incentive yeah. to, to actually work and build this thing whether yeah, it works yeah, or not because yeah. you're the engineer right you don't you're not building the model yeah. so yeah so that's what yeah, it's interesting incentives and outcomes as we say so yeah. Well, because there's an incentive to just make the short-term bet, right? Again, we, we like to loop back to long-term capital management and Black Shoals, but like everyone saw that that bet was working. I, I'll have to go read more history about it, but I'm sure that there were people saying, look, this, this may not work for everyone. When it stops working, people may be out a lot of money and it may cause major economic problems. But if you effectively have a golden parachute and the golden parachute could just be that you lose your job, but you have savings and you're not on the hook for all the money that's lost. Right. And you don't have an incentive to like be responsible in this regard. How does this play to data engineering? Yeah, it's very well. <laughs> okay. So bring it back to data engineering. Huh. Yeah. How does this apply to data engineering? Well, I mean, you're building systems. I think it's a classic yeah, engineering thing though, right? right? Where you're, yeah. you're building systems, you know, to support something. Yeah. But you're the engineer, right? It's kind right. of like you're the uh, you're the construction worker building the house. Like you don't live there. Yeah. So, you're one step removed, right? Yeah. But you do, you know, I think of the data engineering life cycle and the ML life cycle as well. Yeah. You're still responsible for providing high quality inputs, right? Yeah. For these models or for these uh, analysis. And like, that's what your job is essentially. Yeah. So I think finding the best systems to do this. And so, but it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think there's a tendency to just say it's someone else's problem. Like I just created the data, you decide what you do with it. But I don't know if that's the right approach. Hey, Matt, he wants to know why you're a, uh, a recovering data scientist. <laughs> uh, good morning, Tiago. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah. um, 
I think we both call each other that. We, we definitely do. And I mean, fundamentally, is it, uh, is it partially just a matter of the experiences that we had? But I think they're experiences that aren't all that uncommon. No, I, mean, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I've been working in machine learning for a while now. Yeah. I mean, it's 10 years. Uh, you know, so I, I, I would say that um, my experience, you know, I'm probably going to echo you, but it's like, yeah. um, I think a lot of people just start out with doing data science and don't really think about the why or the how and what they mm -hmm. need to do it. And so they build these models that um, basically reside on laptops and we try and productionize them. It just falls apart. I realized basically machine learning to do it right means it's an engineering problem. Right. Right. So right. I don't know. What were you, what's your experience? Yeah. I mean, my experience was similar. I mean, I was brought in to try to solve some, well, honestly, we weren't really given problems to solve. We were just told your new data science team produce value. And that didn't really work very well. And um, we also just didn't necessarily have the tools that we needed yeah. for production use cases. And so I ended up kind of wandering onto the data engineering side for that reason. And then also just coincided with the real growth of data in the cloud. I mean, it's not like EMR or even tools like BigQuery and Redshift were brand new, but it was just the time when everyone was getting into those tools, realizing how much you could do with off-the-shelf cloud products. And so that made it very attractive to get into data engineering because you could jump in and produce value. Well, quickly. you had a necessity to do it because if you had yeah. to do the data engineering, you wouldn't be doing your job as a data be doing scientist, your job, right? right? And it's like at some point, well, I'm the specialist now, which means that I'm actually not a data scientist anymore because I'm the one who produces the data. I think also it's just recognizing yeah. you know, when you zoom out, you start yeah. seeing these problems over and over and over again where companies will hire data scientists or data scientist teams yeah. you know, and expect them to do machine learning. And then they're like, well, why, why haven't you guys produced value yet? Right. And so inevitably it ends up being an engineering question, um, at least in our experience. Again, this could be self-selecting, but I don't think so. We see this enough. Yeah. So there's lots of data scientists all the time who are hired to do magical things and they end up uh, waiting on data <laughs> and, and maybe building systems to get the data, yeah. usually in a very haphazard fashion as well, because they're not trained to be engineers. Right. Yeah. They're just doing what they can to do their job and you can't blame them for that. We've all done the same thing. Well, and I think when we think about the notion of cargo cult thing, just like trying to copy what other people do to be really successful, whatever happens to be hot. Um, I think one of the companies that gets cargo cult of the most for good reason is Google. Like everyone saw Google doing these amazing things with data and not realizing how much work they put into having really good systems behind the scenes. Like at Google, as far as I can tell, the vast majority of their effort is going into data engineering. And then they get amazing results out of data science because they have such good systems. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's all about the data at and the ops. end of the day, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and ops. That's a big one, right? Yeah. So you're starting to see data ops. Um, and it's been around for a bit. ML right. ops is, you know, definitely the, uh, the hot thing right now. Right. So if you're going to get into data science, I'd say look at ML ops, look at ML engineering too, and maybe transition to that. I think because the, the notion of like modeling and all that, like uh, training models, it's, it's very much a solved problem, I'd say, for most use cases. It's not an interesting conversation anymore, at least for me. If you're in academic research on the cutting edge of training, I think that's cool. Like we talked on, you know, it might be whatever successor is to deep learning. Yeah. But we'll have to bring Aaron Hunsaker on sometime. He works for, a, he, he's part of Turner, he's one of our senior engineers. And he's talked about the fact that what often happens now in a machine learning career or a data science career is that you kind of build one model. And then you'll spend like five to 10 years just like tuning that model all the time right. because now you have a machine that's working, right? So now you're in the engine room. A money-putting like, machine. Yeah, yeah. It prints money, but you got to retune it all the time. 
it can turn into kind of a boring job actually because you're just in there like turning knobs basically to keep this model running well that's but jobs get boring after a bit yeah right i suppose so that's maybe just a sign of maturity like we're not doing cutting edge research in laboratory anymore we're just using we're using interesting tools but we use them in a very predictable way to get very predictable quality results uh Emery says oh, I use XPM in Google Home. Um, <laughs> hey, Google. <laughs> Sorry, man. Um, it's a service we provide. Actually, I have an, I, right here I have an Alexa, which I just turned on. Um, yep, she just turned on. And then I got Google in the other room, so I sorry about that. I totally empathize. I have none of these devices. I mean, I guess my phone can be voice activated, but I just I'm like, hey, yeah, but like Siri is like the worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my watch. Yeah, she so turns dumb. on. Turns on all the time. It frustrates my kids too because I'll talk to Siri and Alexa asking uh, questions for school. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing kids ask. You know, use these devices for school now, um, which is kind of interesting. interesting. Talk to robots and stuff, but the, the voice recognition is very hit and miss. They'll be yelling yeah. at Alexa like Alexa. Why are you so dumb? I'll just look this up on Google. So. The other problem with Alexa and with most of these systems, frankly, is that they have sophisticated voice recognition, but there, it, it, again, it's this memory problem, right? So when you talk to Alexa, how does it think about state? I think this has improved, but you know, a few years back, this is how it worked. You're basically talking to a sophisticated phone tree. So behind the scenes, you just had a hierarchical model of different states that Alexa could be in. And you say, all right, now I want to ask this question. Then it would respond yep. and everything it tried to respond to thereafter was from the perspective of that state. Yeah. And it couldn't keep track of a longer conversation. It was very hard to get it to loop back to thinking about the recent past, for example. It's impossible. Like Actually, I made one of the first yeah. published Alexa apps yeah. back in what, 2015 or 2016. Yeah. I still get AWS credits for that surprise. Oh, awesome. Thanks, AWS. Yeah. Um, <laughs> being an Alexa developer, uh, far removed, nobody yeah. uses my app anymore. But um, but yeah, that's right. It would just be uh, basically a series of states and it's very hard coded at yeah. the time. I'm sure it's improved. It had to have improved. I hope it's improved. It's kind of kludgy back then. Yeah. So, but I mean, I think even there, if you could solve that problem, then you would just blow everyone away. I think you would take over the space very quickly. That's probably GPT three. Yeah. Well, except again, GPT three also has a memory problem. But yeah, if you can figure out how to take GPT three and give it a memory somehow of the recent past, then then you're talking. That'll write your charm paper for you. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um. Let me see, actually, there's a, Tiago has a question here. So a yeah. uh, statement, really. Yeah. So every data scientist that joins a company without proper data engineering has a 95% yeah. probability yeah. of ending up as a data engineer. Sounds like the same experience of a bunch of people. Uh, yeah, I think this is yeah. kind of the common convergence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this ends up being like a law of some sort yeah. at some point, but uh, like a Moore's law. Yeah, but and we, we try to pitch people on the idea of investing in data engineering first. It doesn't mean you don't need data scientists. It doesn't mean you don't need sophisticated tools, but like build the foundations first and get your data in place. And often they'll find a lot of value just out of better analytics or more real-time analytics. And then they can focus on these harder problems once that foundation is there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, good insight. A uh, guy says uh, for a long time and probably still today, data scientists weren't necessarily building out data systems. Uh, they were usually just going and grabbing the data they needed for the yeah. use case. Yep, that was me back in the 2000s. Yeah. I would just... Get the data I needed, hope it was right, um, yeah. and build things. And so, and know. a lot of ML ops is not anything particularly sophisticated. People are still fighting over the exact definition of ML ops, but it's just getting models off of laptops and getting data pipelines automated. That's just like you're doing software engineering, yeah, right? Exactly, or data engineering. Observability yeah. is a huge thing right now in ML yeah. and data. Yeah. And so, yeah, big one. Sure. But yeah, data systems, it's like, yeah, these didn't exist back in the day. You would just say, oh, yeah. I need to go get that uh, file over on that. SharePoint, right? And just 
do it that way. So it was a simpler time. It was, but it, it's also funny that we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. So you had things. Well, who's know, the baby and who, what's well, the bathwater? I think that I think in this case, the, well, maybe the analogy is misused here. But basically, <laughs> what I would see is you'd have a nice data warehouse with fairly curated data, and people would like download. You know, they run a SQL query on Teradata, they download some data, and they build a sophisticated model off of it. And that that step of like you already have automated data pipelines. And so you should be able to automate that kind of last mile part of training your model, but that part yeah. wasn't happening. You know, how often would those models end up just being the same thing you could do with a report? Yeah. That's a very interesting. I've seen this a lot. <laughs> like you build a model and it's like literally like you could have just done that with a group by yeah, yeah, your K means that you're doing. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. So even some of these like trending models, you could often see the same results just by, you know, doing a, a group by and, and uh, an order by and just seeing what the top results were in searches, for example. Yeah, and that's, I think, BI data for machine yeah. learning is a bit of a misnomer, depending on the type of problem you're trying to solve. So highly structured data actually answers its own questions. Yeah. So, yeah, often. Know, often. And then you apply some enhancements to it, but like you often don't need really, really sophisticated techniques. Or machine learning at all, frankly. Yeah. yeah. So, should we talk about this? Um, one second here. Yeah. Uh, Warren, Warren Buffet, just kidding. Warren Buffett <laughs> said something to the effect that if investing is exciting, then uh, you're doing it wrong. It seems like uh, once professionals get into the groove, excellence uh, gets a little monotonous. Yeah, that's true for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, well, and how much of your responsibility investing comes down to protecting investments versus trying to make a lot of money? Because, oh, again, yeah, Warren yeah, Buffett's yeah. rule one is don't yeah. lose money. Yeah. yeah rule yeah. two is, you know, don't ignore rule one. Yeah. So it's that easy and that hard, right? So I think. Again, I'm definitely a Warren Buffett fanboy. Um, I actually have a few of his uh, stuff laying over there. Um, so, but you know, I, I think he's got a lot of good points too. You know, so just about I think investing for him is just more about emotional control. Mm -hmm. You know, just uh, if it's boring, it's probably a good thing. So, but I'd say in, in a dynamic world like this, though, um, things just I think change more quickly, but the fundamentals I still do. stay the same. Yeah, yeah. So, but, well, like in the data space, I mean. Quite frank, there's so much money floating around, and there are so many people chasing money, VCs, investments, and things. It's an interesting place to be. I, I don't know quite what to make of it. I mean, you've been following investments for a long, long time, so you <laughs> might have some <laughs> stuff that's happening. I frankly have ideas, you know, and opinions, yeah. but I, yeah, trying to share them too often. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it is. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Tiago asked, "What are the plans of Turner Data for 2022?" I think that's a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, our consulting practice is growing a ton. Uh, so we'll be growing out that team. I, I think additionally, though, with this um, thing called the uh, Fundamentals of Data Engineering, this yeah. book we're writing, it's going to open up a lot of doors for us, right? Yeah. Both for consulting, I would say, as well as um, courses or actively working on it. You know, I think basically the first data engineering course that really, I think, covers the fundamentals. Um, I think there are other courses like that, but they focus more on tools. I think we're trying to stay away from that and really focus on, like, what do you need to know as a data engineer? Uh, being tool agnostic, right? So that's going to be a big one. Yeah. Uh, pushing more into contents, another area. What else have we got going on next year? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a lot of the focus, frankly. I, I think we do see a lot of good content out there, but we do see areas where we can improve upon it. And that's that's what we really want to focus a lot on this year, um, especially because so much of our consulting practice has been helping to helping data engineers to skill up in yep. various ways to learn to use new tools, but also to have a better, better sense of the entire domain, like you were saying. And so kind of full life cycle thinking as opposed to thinking about Spark or just Hadoop or just Peg or one. Yeah, those, I mean, those conversations yeah. are interesting, but they kind of bore yeah. me at the same time. Yeah. So equating like, you know, learn data engineering by learning Hadoop. And it's like that doesn't, nobody even uses that anymore anyway. So 
Um, it's just a component and you're not going to interact with right? it that much directly, yeah. right? It's in EMR, it's in Google data prod, but you, you're not going to be like building or learning data stuff, engineering, right? but learning EMR, right? So yeah, I think those are some of the plans for sure. Definitely going more content heavy. I think the book, it's funny because that was originally the plan for last year. Then the book sort yeah, of yeah, sideswiped yeah, us because, yeah. uh, um, you know, running a business, growing a business and writing a book, I would yeah. say is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's, yeah, I was so I was at a family Christmas gathering on Christmas Day, and I was like the one sitting in the at the counter writing the book. <laughs> yeah, same way, yeah, same yeah, way. But yeah. people understand, right? Maybe they, they do. They do. I mean, I, I still oh, it's, it's mass. He just, he just does this. He's fine. So, but soon the book will be done. We're very excited about that. Um, we really appreciate the support we've gotten from O'Reilly, and also the support we've gotten from a lot of our early readers. Yeah, a lot of people. People reading the previews on O'Reilly. That's that's been awesome to see the support and um, the value people are finding in it. And we're really trying to shape it to make make it useful to both current and future data engineers. And yeah, the content is intended to build around that. And some of it will be tool specific, but I think our goal, it's not so much to like eliminate all the tool specific training. It's more to say data engineers also need to think about the bigger picture. Well, then they also tell you how to select tools. Yeah, right? exactly. That's what I really missing. Exactly, right. like, yeah. Because when we wrote, when we started thinking about what to write, we're like, okay, so what's not going to change in the next five years yeah. or 10 years? Because the, the common complaint we got was, well, how dare you write a book on data engineering in a field that's changing so quickly? Right. Like that's a fair point. Yeah. So the, the way you uh, go about that is think about life cycle, yeah. right? You don't think about um, how to how to spark or dask or whatever fit into the picture. It's right. like a, it's a meaningless conversation because until you understand the life cycle, um, you actually don't know how to fit anything in. You're just you're just getting tools. That's right. So, yeah. And I think watching some major transitions happen in the data space has helped to inform us about the things that aren't going to change. That is, we're going to see more managed services. The services are going to get simpler and more accessible. But the hard data problems of like ensuring data quality and monitoring yep. and creating data that's useful to the people you're serving it to, those are not going away. Anytime not going soon. away anytime yeah. soon. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, when does the book come out? It comes out, I think the uh, pen date is um, September 2022. It yeah. might come out earlier, actually. We're um, hoping. Yeah. Stay tuned on that. We really wanted to get out, you know, and, and Guy's been actually helping read it a bit. Um, he really enjoys the narrative. In the new book, lots of O'Reilly books can be a bit dry, but Fundamentals book uh, comes off very approachable. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, that's comment. awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say um, for anyone who wants to check out the early release chapters, go to O'Reilly.com. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's there. Um, you know, leave a good review if you like it. Um, so, yeah. But again, um, expect more in this space. And content, I think, is a natural evolution of where yeah. Uh, yeah. Turner is going kind of back to Tiago's question. So, and, and why are we open about this, right? We yeah. could just be very, I think, closed vest about it. The thing I've realized about content yeah. especially is, content is, is not a zero-sum game. Right, right. right. So just because, you know, um, some of our friends write data engineering courses doesn't mean you can't just, you can't get both, right, and get different right. opinions. Yeah. Um, if you look at our bookshelves, you know, I mean, they're full of books. How many people out there have, like, one book and one only one book? Nobody, right? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe you like that. But you would never do that. You say, well, I can only have one book, um, and that's the only book I can ever have right? This isn't like a punch pass or something. So knowledge is one of those things that I think is just very multiplicative. And so that's why I have no problem talking about our plans. Cause even if you try to um, come up with a data engineering course, it will, it'll be your course, right? And it'll be different than ours. And I right. think it's great. Um, you know, we have our own take on stuff. We have our own opinions and you know, whoever makes their own content has their own opinions and approaches too. I think that's a great thing in the world. Yeah. If the world was homogenous and we had to stick to a certain standard, that'd be boring as hell. So um you know, and consulting is the same way in some respects. I think consulting very much is a zero sum game, but it's like 
the way we do things is not how anyone else would ever do them. Right. So it would be impossible to replicate. And that's why, again, it's like, we can tell you <laughs> what our plans are, but it's like for you to come in and try and replicate it is, is next to impossible because, because the company's born from our own experiences and, and what we've been through. And it's like, that's every company. Yeah. So and the fact we're not dealing in a commoditized area means that, you know, it's impossible to knock off. Yeah. And I think the whole key to a content play, and I think many people who have tried to get into content, both in tech and many other domains have found this, is that if you try to go head to head with really successful people, you're going to fail, right? It's kind of idiotic to just try to take on the biggest trainers in a certain domain. It's not a good idea. But what you can do is identify what's missing. Like what do are people not finding right now and mm -hmm. focus on that instead. And I, I think that's what we intended. Content's to do. also interesting in the sense where there are, you know, again, back to, back to Matt Turk's giant slide, the, the yeah. data landscape, right? It's if you, fast. so one option for Turnary was to just, you know, do a data startup, right? Why didn't right. we do this? Yeah. Um, not to say we won't, yeah. but we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But the thing is like, where are you going to uh, find a specialty in a landscape that is crowded in tools right now. Right. And are you sure that you pick the right tool and the right problem to solve that you can dedicate the next five to 10 years of your life focused yeah. on that? Yeah. You could pivot, of course, but the grain of what you're trying to solve still needs to be the same, I would hope, you know, um, or at least in the same vein. And so I just don't know that I'm smart enough to figure out what product to, to build at this point. Yeah. Whereas content is interesting because you can just, you know, um, capitalize on the latest trends and make content on that yep. instead. And I think that's, to me, a bit more interesting to solve right now. Well, we're trying to figure out, you know, maybe what the, you know, a good data product is. I just simply don't know. I don't know that I'm smart enough to know that answer. It's really tough too, because I, I mean, to be quite frank, we see a lot of startups kind of stepping on each other, doing very similar things. And observability is a big one. Observability is a big one. I, I think it's super so useful. But yeah. yeah, I don't know who's going to win the, the game, and I. It, it's tough because many of these companies, some will be super successful. Some will get purchased. Some might get crushed by the big players. Like it's a scary place to be. I, I wish them all success because I all they observe. There are a lot of them are friends too. Yeah, yeah so I, I hope everyone does stuff, great. You yeah. know, but, but the thing is, it's like everyone doing great means nobody does great because yeah. again, business is very much in that space of very much a zero sum game. Yeah, and so it's like now market you're capture. Yeah, it's about market capture. Yeah. You know, and it's like if you get a first mover advantage and or or a fast follower advantage too, then you can win. But it's, it's an incredibly difficult problem to solve. Like if you, if you look at uh, the data landscape and ask me who, to, who the winners are, I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, a lot of it depends on the teams, honestly. You talk to VCs, that's how they invest. It's not the idea. It's not the product. It's, it's like, who's, who's the team behind this? Yeah. Because you, you have so much uncertainty. It's like, how, would you, how can you assess what, what field is going to be, you know, dominant either? So. Yeah. It's their ability to like make adjustments to the current realities of the market and just really promote and grab market share. That's yep. a very tricky problem. And I don't think anyone is really certain how to solve it right now, to be quite frank. Um, we'll well, it was but, that easy. It'd be, yeah. You know, you have the efficient market of, of uh, startups. That's right. You have yeah, the exact it's opposite. It's not efficient at all. No, it's yeah, totally it's inefficient, like, which is great. Yeah, that awesome. you know, if, if it's inefficient, that means there's opportunities you know, to make a dent. Um, where if it's totally efficient, then they'd be like, well, then what's the point? You just get the index of startups and you're done. So um, maybe somebody should do that too. I don't know. Maybe so. Like, yeah, startup <laughs> analytics. Is super like sketchy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's uh, time to wrap up now. But thanks yeah. to the audience for the questions. Um, sorry, Luigi couldn't make it today. Again, he was feeling a bit under the weather. So maybe he'll be back on at some point. Yeah. Um, he's a really cool dude. You need to talk to him about jujitsu as well. We're kind of nerds in that area. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> I don't like getting hit. So. <laughs> jujitsu, you don't get hit. Okay. Yeah, you'd be perfect for you. So you just uh, you can go 100%, just grapple and um, 
No, it's all submissions. Okay. <laughs> See, that sounds terrible too. No, it's fine, man. It's fine. It's totally safe. Um, as long as you tap. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got to tap. Yep. Yeah. I, I was rolling with one guy. He, he, I don't know. It was weird. I think he, I wasn't sure he wanted to break a limb or something because he wouldn't tap on anything. I'm like, I can't, I can't force you into this. I can't go any further. So I'm going to hurt you. So it's just, it's a weird sport. It attracts some interesting people, but um, yeah. And if you're in Salt Lake too, I think I'm going to be getting back into jujitsu uh, pretty soon. Um, probably around February uh, ish. So if you want yeah. Omicron allowing, we'll, we'll see. Omicron allowing. Yeah. 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 I think once we'll get past a few other things and yeah. I'll um, you know, be uh, back on the mat. So if anyone wants to go, yeah. um, go do jits, uh, let me know. So, and awesome. Um, anything else you want to cover or are we good? Yeah, so kind of a roundabout discussion. Of us, but, yeah. yeah. Enough of us. Yeah. <laughs> Data engineering versus ML engineering. Um, yeah. It's a good chat. Yeah. Kind of roundabout. Um, if anyone in the ML engineering or ML ops world wants to, um, you know, be on the morning morning data chat as well, let us know. We'd love to have you on and chat about it because I'm very fascinated by the space right now. So, um, and if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our YouTube at Ternary Data. Uh, you can also get our newsletter at ternarydata.com. Every week uh, we publish uh, our weekly uh, data rants, uh, which I think a lot of people like those. So yeah, they're kind of trolly, frankly, very sometimes, but they're they're fun. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people like them because I think what, what's missing is you can send out, and it also includes links. But I think the cool thing with um, what we're doing is just very off the cuff, you know, yeah. our, our thoughts. It's basically Monday morning data chat written down, frankly. Um, but a lot of people like them. So yeah, if you, if you want to get that newsletter. Um, Subscribe there. Right now, the only way you can get the you know, weekly data rounds is actually to subscribe to the newsletter or have them forwarded. We've heard people are forwarding them. So it's kind of like this yeah. underground mixtape thing now. Um, and then uh, what else? We've got some events coming up. Um, actually, next week we have Seattle Data Guy. He's going to be on. So he's always a, uh, fun to talk to. So um, we can talk about uh, data engineering with him. Then we also have, uh, who else is coming on here? I know Andreas Kretz is going to be on later in the month. Um, one second here. I know there was. Uh, oh, Kevin, who he's going to be on the show on the tenth. Uh, that's going to be dope. So he's a, a CEO of Metaplane. He's a really nice guy. We we spent a nice afternoon walking around with him in Boston. Yeah, that's, very very insightful. Yeah, very smart person. I can't wait yeah. to talk more with him. Yeah, and so a lot of stuff coming up. Um, also, if you're in the Salt Lake area, we have um, I think it was the twenty fifth. We have a uh, happy hour with um starburst so they're um gonna be sponsoring a happy hour so uh hopefully uh, you know covid uh notwithstanding uh this should be a fun time so this is also during the uh, sundance film festival so you know if you're into uh sundance film festival let's hang out so yeah let us know if you're in town yeah let us know you're in town yeah. so cool i hope everyone has a great new year um can't believe 2022 is already rolling it's, around but yeah I guess it's, it's what time does. It just marches on. Especially when everyone's in isolation, <laughs> trying to figure out the future. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, well, cool. Well, Matt, I guess we better get to work. So yep. I hope everyone has a good Monday. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.